Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence and worldwide environmental issues. For today's coffee feature, I'll be talking briefly about AfriCafe. Listen to the end to find out more. For the first episode of season four, I talk with Thor Hansen. In the episode, I pronounce it Thor as in the Norse God of Thunder, as I've been taught at school, but I think I'll go with the opinions of the guy whose name it is. Thor is a conservation biologist, ecologist, and best-selling author. We talk about a myriad of topics from bees and warfare ecology to the subject of his new book, Climate Change and Animal Adaptation. Hi Thor, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, all the way from across the pond, as you said. Um, it's about 11 in the morning for you, I think. That's right. Yeah, and a pleasure to be with you. This is a very polite hour for, a, for an interview. Thank you. No problem. Always happy to accommodate. So we'll begin by getting to know you a bit. Could you kind of give me a brief rundown of, of who you are and where you first started showing an interest in the natural world? Certainly. Well, I was always the kid with the, you know, cooler full of garter snakes uh, and out catching lizards and, and frogs and, and out fishing and doing a lot of things in the natural world. I was lucky enough to grow up in the Pacific Northwest here in, in Washington State, where I had access to a lot of, you know, great natural areas. And I think really took them for granted until I traveled away for university down into the southern part of California into a very urbanized setting, great uh, education there, but the education extended beyond the classroom and that I was so shocked by the, the loss of natural areas and being cut off from them that it steered me toward a career in conservation biology. And that is really the, the point where my interest in the natural world transformed into a commitment to try to use science in ways that can help us conserve it. And so that started me on the path of a variety of field jobs and further education through the academic uh, circuit. And it wasn't until some time later that I decided to start spending more of my time communicating science to a broader audience. I think in academia, I became a little frustrated by seeing so many wonderful and important ideas and discoveries that never seemed to make it beyond the relatively limited audience of peer-reviewed journals, which are of course an essential part of the scientific process and the community, but there were all these great notions that I never saw getting farther. And so I began writing popular articles and popular books about some of those notions and ideas. And that part of my career has now really taken over most of my time. So I spend much of my time now writing and communicating science to a broad audience. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent answer. So many of my guests have got their start by just being interested in nature as a child and kind of fully throwing themselves into that natural curiosity for um, for life, really, that we have as children. And science communication is a massive thing. We've had it quite a few times on the podcast because 
it's yeah as you said just so so vital not everyone can get access to scientific journals not everyone can understand or read them um so it's so important to communicate the messaging of those of that research um to to wider audiences talking a bit about um education obviously we're here to talk about your more current work but I'd like to quickly jump into some of your previous um, work and, and things you've done in the past. So I know you've helped establish a couple of excellent wildlife oriented tourism programs. And we've had that subject on the podcast quite a few times, actually. So a whole episode dedicated to ecotourism and then one more specifically focused on, on bears in Alaska, which I know you've I've worked with, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So, I so had we... To... Sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say I had a wonderful, a couple of wonderful opportunities back to back to work in that realm early in my career. First, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Uganda, I was assigned to a brand new national park there called Bwindi Impenetrable Forest. This was in the early 1990s. And my job as a young biologist was to help the national park establish an ecotourism program based upon the uh, tracking, daily tracking of mountain gorillas in the rainforest there. And that was a, a fabulous experience in a number of ways. And, and it, the course idea was to create, help create at least, an economic incentive for conserving those wonderful creatures and their forest home. And I'm, I'm happy to say that the project is still you know, up and running all these years later. So it's been uh, uh, quite uh, uh, gratifying to be involved in the early stages of it and then to see it really take off. Uh, and then similarly in Alaska, I was helping to manage another ecotourism program with a big charismatic megafauna, but in that case, it was uh, brown bears there on a place called Admiralty Island, where there's a great density of bears and people come from all over to see them. And so I was working for the Forest Service there, helping manage a, a tourism site for bear viewing. That's, that's really great to hear that they're still going. And it's I love finding these little, it's happened a few times now, these little links between um, podcast guests. I've got one of the very very first episodes it was a uh, think episode three so back way back in in 2020 now um we had a photographer wildlife photographer on the podcast talking about the pebble mine in alaska and, mm. the, and the sort of campaign to save bristol bay bay area and um and so it's always really really nice to find these little links between guests and um you know the work you both different profession very different professions but um, you know, very rooted in education. And it's always great to get, uh, we've covered the, the topic a few times, but it's always great to get this unique perspective uh, from everyone, especially from someone like you who's in the scientific community um, and has been instrumental in the foundation of some of these programs. But how, how important would you say that tourism programs, for example, brown bear tourism in Alaska, um, how important would you say they are to wider environmental education in in specific small areas? Well, it's, we've had a really interesting test of the whole ecotourism concept over the past couple of years going through the pandemic, mm. when, of course, tourism in general dried up as people stayed home and isolated and stopped traveling. And it exposed, you know, a real vulnerability 
of the strategy and that if people aren't traveling, you have no, you know, that economic incentive that you were trying to create for conservation uh, evaporates. And so it underscores that, that the ecotourism projects can be a part of, but should not be the sole part of the conservation effort in any of these areas for any of these uh, these parks or preserves or you know fancy animals that people and go to see you, you need to be working broadly and of course conservation education in multiple ways is is a part of that trying to improve that that conservation ethic that we all strive toward uh, across populations and and so I think you, you know there are various ways to go about that if you're talking about how tourism feeds into that, it certainly gives people a personal experience and connection with nature at, at a time when those sorts of connections are really being frayed as we spend more and more time indoors in our sort of media and technology focused lifestyles. So there can be something very important for fostering personal connections to whether it's you know an experience tracking mountain gorillas or seeing brown bears and so on, some way for these creatures and their habitats to become very real to people. I think that is important to foster a uh, you know a network of people who can be advocates in their daily lives for conservation based upon the experiences that they've had in nature. Uh, so I do think that's a part of it, but um, you, you also need to be working broadly um, in terms of education from the youth all the way up through adult education on connections in general between our lives and, and the natural world that can try to maintain that conservation ethic through a period of time where our daily interactions with, with nature for most people are ebbing. That's a that's an excellent answer because I think it's I'm really glad you you mentioned uh, older generations as well because people kind of really focus on I think tend to focus more on on young people and and taking them you know away from their smartphones and devices and more actually into nature while forgetting that a lot of um you know older people have grown up in cities and have grown up also very far away from nature um and do also would also highly benefit from that education so so it's a really good point um in terms of i'm kind of gonna just quickly going through a couple of questions on your previous work because it's it's actually really fascinating i i had a really big sort of deep dive and a, a couple of hours of just research and reading and it was it was great um and one thing that was i'm not sure how easy this is going to be to sum up quickly because it's such a huge topic um, and it should probably cover an entire episode not just a one question but some so you've done a little bit of work in warfare ecology the sort of uh, offshoot of applied ecology a, a different branch a bit of a newer branch of, of that area it seems really fascinating but also quite quite grim um, talking about war and the impact of of conflict on on wildlife um, could you tell me a bit about that, what it means and, and what your research has involved. Yes, well, you're right. It's a big topic. So, you know, how much time do we have and sort of thing. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but briefly, I got interested in the idea of warfare ecology really from my work with mountain gorillas, which took place in a very volatile part of the world, you know, Southwest 
Uganda, directly bordering Democratic Republic of Congo and, and very close to the border with Rwanda, a, a politically volatile area. And saw how, you know, in spite of the international attention we had, you know, based upon these very famous animals we were working with and, and a lot of different groups trying to, to work there, you know, in the year, several years after I worked there, the park where we had been doing all of this was attacked by some, some rebels and, and there were deaths and some destruction in the, and around that area. And so I saw how fragile that conservation was in the context of the social political uh, occurrences in that region. And it got me thinking more and more about the responsibility of conservationists for taking into account the, uh, those sorts of considerations. What is the stability of the area and how can conservation not only work to protect animals and habitats, but try to promote peace and understanding in you know, various parts of the world. And soon after that experience, I was reading an article that was talking about conflict and the number of active conflicts in the world. And they had a conflict map. And I looked at the map and I thought, I've seen that map before. And here, you know, here it was, a map of the world. And it had these little flashpoints. And I think they had little, as, as I recall the map, uh, you, you know, little fires burning in various parts of the world that were denoting active conflicts. But I looked at the map mm -hmm. and I said, wait a minute, I've seen that map. That is the map of the biodiversity hotspots of the world. Something that uh, had been put together years earlier by a number of leading ecologists and conservation biologists to identify places in the world that had extraordinary biodiversity so that if you were trying to prioritize conservation, you should target these particular areas with great uh, you know, rates of, of what we call endemism, you know, plants and, and creatures that are found nowhere else and great diversity and so on and so forth. And what I did was team up with the folks who had put together that original map and we teamed up with you know, others who were studying conflict and did an analysis and learned that, yes, in fact, if you look at all of the wars that occurred between, we took 1950 to 2000, because uh, there was good data available, and plotted them on a map, and you learned that 90% of those wars took place in countries with biodiversity hotspots, and that over 80% actually included fighting within those small bio biodiversity hotspots themselves, within those rich biodiverse areas. And it, it really highlighted to all of us that we needed to be concerned about conflict if we're concerned about biodiversity conservation. So that led you know, to a, a lot of other work with various people you know, at NATO conferences and, and other things to promote this idea of a subset of ecology, applied ecology, warfare ecology, that, that considers not just the conflicts themselves, those brief periods, well, hopefully brief, sometimes longer, but periods of, of active fighting, but warfare as a process, the preparations for war, which include you know, weapons development and training and so forth, troops, um, the wars, and then the long post-conflict periods, which include all sorts of things from you know, refugee 
situations to uh, resettlement and rehabilitation of damaged landscapes and you know unexploded ordnance and all these other things that linger after a conflict so if you include all of that sort of thinking you you come to understand that warfare is this process that is acting upon the environment constantly not just in these you know small episodes or uh, smaller or, or contained episodes of fighting, so to speak. It's, it's happening all the time and having all sorts of environmental implications. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, pretty, pretty well, well summed up, I'd say. It's, as you said, it is kind of how much time do we have kind of subject. Um, I, when I was looking into this, I came across this uh, book that you, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a book or a sort of large uh, document that you contributed to about uh, warfare ecology, a synth, uh, synthesis for peace and security, so a NATO document uh, and book. And it's currently, I think, retailing at about 70 pounds, which I think is about 95 US dollars. Um, so quite a, a large amount online. <laughs> if, if somebody, um, if my listeners want to learn more about warfare ecology and aren't in a position to, to buy a 70 pound book, um, it, is there any more writing that's more accessible that you'd, you'd recommend us, us look into? Certainly, yes. The, the world of academic publishing, you, you quickly come across some very expensive volumes. Mm, yeah. But if your listeners are interested in this topic, at, uh, I mean, an easy way to do it would be to go to my website, which is, uh, you know, torhanson.net, T-H-O-R-H-A-N-S-O-N.net. And under the research column there, I have listed several papers with PDFs that can be downloaded that include, you know, a paper called Warfare Ecology, uh, one about warfare and biodiversity hotspots, spots, excuse me, and then a, a more recent review from a couple of years ago, looking across the literature that just has a, you know, over 200 references that that will lead people, you know, uh, uh, down the rabbit hole of warfare ecology, so to speak. But there's just a lot of fascinating ideas and work being done out there. It's it's a huge topic, so that would be one way to get uh, some papers uh, to sink your teeth into without uh, forking over. Pounds. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's um, you know the, these texts are really important to read, but only if you I don't know are doing a, a big dissertation or thesis. They're not really something that is accessible to the general consumer, sadly. Um, so it's really great to to find some things over your website, and I'll definitely be looking into those myself. But I mean, this will be the last question about your previous work. But I want to talk quickly about your book. So we're about to talk about books in a minute your book Buzz. Um, I've actually got it sitting on my shelf. I haven't read it fully um, because I'm only about halfway through, but it's um, it's all about bees. And obviously most of my listeners will know that bees are incredibly important. Without bees, there would be huge, not to be dramatic, but pretty catastrophic social and nutritional crisis. Um, and I really want to know is, you know, we could talk forever about bees, but where did that connection start for you? Where, what drew you first to studying and working with these, I know you could almost call them frontline workers of the insect world. I like that. I like that phrase. I may borrow that. That's good. They are frontline workers. They're so essential and yet so often overlooked. And my interest, 
you know, particularly in bees, really stems from some research I was doing in Central America in the rainforests there. I was studying these big rainforest trees, a sort of keystone species in that forest that produces copious amounts of fruit during the drier part of the year when not many uh, you know, plants are fruiting. And so it was a very important food resource for a lot of different creatures. And I was studying how these trees functioned in an increasingly uh, fragmented landscape, how their populations were impacted by cutting the forest into smaller patches and how pollen was being dispersed and how seeds were being dispersed uh, and how that impacted the genetics and, and so on. And so it was a, a, a fascinating piece of work. But one of the, the questions that really struck me was what was moving all that pollen around up there? These are huge trees and everything was happening out of sight, way up above me in the rainforest canopy. And I had this genetic information because I had genetically fingerprinted the adult trees in the landscape. And I could see that something was moving pollen not just between neighboring trees, but between trees that were one, two kilometers apart, something was flying long distances. And because that tree was a member of the pea family and the subfamily, uh, the faboid peas, which are, are very similar to the sweet peas or garden peas you have in your backyard, that pea flower with the, the banners and the, the keel of petals that really is, is is particularly suited to bee pollination. I knew that there were bees up there, but I couldn't see them. And so I was desperate to find out what species or many species of bees may have been doing that pollen transport. So I teamed up with a colleague who is an entomologist and we spent a fruitless couple of weeks with a, a bunch of different insect traps and lines and ropes. And we had a, a local uh, assistant who was very handy with a crossbow and he was shooting lines up into these trees and we were hauling up all manner of traps and we caught a, a grand total of zero bees. We could not get these bees to go into our traps. So we never did learn what species was doing that pollination. But that experience really sparked within me a fascination for these creatures that has never died. And so I have always looked for ways to chase after bees in my research, but also just in daily life ever since. And that interest led to the book Buzz. Amazing. Yeah, I I came up with the um, sort of phrase frontline workers because I, I was taking a lot of photos of bees uh, during the first lockdown here in the UK when that phrase was everywhere in the mainstream. But um, yes. it is really it is really true. It's not, you know, it's, it's completely... Um, without them we'd be we'd be lost um but yeah i i'm not sure if there's i've actually read uh anything like buzz sort of dedicated fully to the bee obviously there's a lot of bee care books out, books out there how to you know keep them and you know use them as a product really but there's no um yeah i haven't really read anything in a while just about the science behind it all and and how incredible they are. So um, I'm really hoping that a few of my listeners will pick that up if they haven't already. Well, I also in that book wanted to take the opportunity to broaden our perspective on bees. We tend to think of bees, uh, you know, as, as honeybees. And, and, and that is, of course, the species that we know best being the domesticated uh, version. 
But of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And the honeybees in many ways are sort of an exception in the bee world and that most bees are solitary creatures out doing their their work in the landscape all by themselves. And we have thousands of species, that's, you know, 20,000 species estimated of bees across the world from, uh, you know, the more familiar things like bumblebees, but also leafcutter bees and mason bees and wool carter bees and cuckoo bees and carpenter bees. I mean, they're just scads of them all with fascinating biological stories. So I, I wanted to take the opportunity in that book to broaden our perspective from the bee we know best to the full suite of bee diversity. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And again, very important from an educational standpoint. And I know you said at the start that you're kind of really focused more on science communication, education now with your writing. And we are finally going to talk about your new book because that's kind of why we're here is to talk all about this and explain what's going on, why it's out there, why you've written it, all things climate change and adaptation, um, which are, are huge, fascinating topics. And I know a fair proportion of my listeners um, will either be, you know, that they'll all be aware of the climate crisis that is currently affecting the world. They'll all be, um, some of them I know for a fact are actually, you know, one or two of my core listeners are, facing the effects of climate change quite dramatically um, in other countries outside of the UK right now, today, on sort of small island nations. And so humans have to adapt uh, in various ways to this crisis. And uh, we have to change in, in a lot of different ways, especially with regards to holding huge corporations to account and all that. And there's, again, long, big subjects for another time. But what your book focuses on is how animals, other other non-human animals, are adapting. And could you could you kind of talk maybe a bit about your book, why you wrote it, and cover one or two of the the main animals um, that are currently showing these these amazing ad- adaptations? Sure. Yes. Well, I got you know focused on this. I mean, I think all of us are aware of the of the crisis. It really is the overarching you know biological theme of our era. And I was particularly frustrated with this iconic image that we see so often, the, you know, polar bear on a, on a melting iceberg, uh, which is a great, you know, a, a great story in and of itself, but too often, far too often, the conversation about biological impacts sort of begins and ends there. We invoke the poor polar bear and then move on to policy and politics and all the rest of it, leaving behind this essential story that is really fundamental to all climate change scenarios, because it's not so much about the change itself as it is about the responses to the change. I mean, if all species got along just as well in all conditions, then tweaking the weather one way or another wouldn't matter in the slightest. But of course, that's not how nature works. Biodiversity is this great accumulation of specialization, if you will, species that are, that are adapted to particular environmental conditions. And when you change those conditions, particularly when you change them rapidly, as we're doing so now, those species must react to survive. And it is the sum of those responses that will really you know, spell the future, theirs as well as our own. And so I wanted to dive into that and go out into the landscape with experts 
and look at all of the adaptations, all of the movement, all of the behavioral changes and so forth that we can measure right now happening in real time all around us. And emphasize that this is not just a future crisis, this is a now crisis. And what can we learn about nature's response? And what can we learn and be informed uh, in terms of our own response by how plants and animals are coping with this crisis now? The book's called, I should have mentioned this earlier, the book's called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid, which immediately, like, just even the cover grabs your eye and it's a bit like, what's this about? You know, it's uh, probably, a lot of people will probably think it's about plastic pollution or something if they don't read the subtitle. Um, but it's uh, such an incredible concept to explore and definitely one that we should be looking deeper into. And uh, I've just checked, but it has officially been released here in the UK now, I think, hasn't it? Yes, just a few yeah. days ago, it's out in the UK edition. And, you know, it's interesting. I When I go out talking about a book, sometimes it takes me a while to explain you know, the book and, and how do I how do I encapsulate this and try to communicate what I was going about in writing it. But I realized early on with this one that if I can just explain the title, then uh, everyone will have a pretty good idea of what the book is about. And in this case, I chose those two stories to feature because they really emphasize some of the, the, the breadth of what's happening out in nature. The plastic squid, if you will, is a marvelous story that comes to us from the Gulf of California mm. down in Mexico, where there has traditionally been a, a quite a large fishery on the Humboldt squid, these jumbo squid that can grow, you know, close to a, you know, two meters in size. There are these very large squid that live in that part of the ocean. Uh, until a few years ago, after a series of climate-driven marine heat waves swept through and the fishery just dried up. And everyone there assumed that the squid had moved, had, had shifted their range to cooler waters where they were more comfortable, because that is one of the main responses to climate change. It's happening all over the place, is plants and animals shifting ranges rapidly, searching for their comfort zone in these rapidly changing, changing landscapes and, and seascapes. So that was what everyone assumed until a group of scientists went down to do some surveys to see if there might be any squid left hanging around. And we're astounded to find not only were the squid still there, but they were in some cases more abundant than ever. But they were almost unrecognizable because instead of responding to that heat stress by departing, they had responded by adopting a totally different life strategy they had responded by maturing twice as fast and reproducing in half the time. They had responded by eating different foods. They had responded by growing to only a fraction of their former size. If you had a, you know, a squid that might've been close to two meters as an adult, an adult squid now in warmer waters might be 20 or 30 centimeters. So they were too small, in fact, to bite upon the hooks that had formerly been used to catch them. And the few that anyone was catching, they were throwing back as juveniles or perhaps another species altogether uh, because they looked so different. 
And this is an incredible example of what we call in biology plasticity, the sort of built-in ability of a species to be flexible, to adapt rapidly to changing conditions. And it comes in all sorts of forms. There, there's behavioral plasticity where you might you know, change uh, your daily habits or change what you eat or this sort of thing. There's, you know, physiological plasticity where you might, you know, as a human being, uh, go up in elevation to, to go skiing in, in the mountains and your body reacts automatically to the low density of oxygen in that air by producing more red blood cells and so on and so forth. So that sort of physiological plasticity. These squid were doing those things, but even more so, they were expecting, uh, expressing what uh, biologists call phenotypic plasticity, wherein the genotype, the genes uh, that uh, make up their uh, you know, genetic makeup, their DNA and so forth, were expressing a totally different strategy. As if early on in their lives, when the eggs or the, the larva of the squid were exposed, to that warmer water, something triggered this different pathway, as if to say, the, the, the conditions are harsh for squid in warmer waters. There will not be as much food as they would like. And so it would be you know, disadvantageous to be out there trying to support some massive one meter or two meter long body. And so something early along in their development then, this plastic response sent them on a different pathway and their genes, their genotype expressed a different phenotype as a small squid that could survive and even thrive under those harsh conditions. So a marvelous example of the sort of built-in flexibility that exists in nature for some species. Wow, that was that was an incredibly fascinating response um, and definitely something that I just really haven't looked into before. Um, yeah, the plasticity of squid is just, um, yeah, not really a subject that you, you come across in the mainstream, like most mo the most interesting parts of science don't really seem to appear in everyone's view, sadly. Um, in the book, we, you speak about the lessons that we can learn as a species from other non-human animals and the lessons in adaptation. Could you give us an example of, you know, what you mean by this? What can we learn as humans um, from these animals? Oh, absolutely. But I first just have to realize that I, I sort of left you all hanging because I said mm. I was going to explain the title of the book and I only explained the squid part. So <laughs> yeah, let, me, no, let no. me just finish that answer by explaining the hurricane lizards and then yeah. we'll get on to the, what we can learn from all of this. But yeah, I should definitely. point out that the bulk of the responses that we see in nature now are some version of that squid story in a sense. Plasticity meaning flexibility that's already inherent in a species. We see, you know, creatures changing their diet. We see creatures, uh, you know, moving in response to climate change, all sorts of behavioral things and, and some physiological changes, mostly built into the genome. But we are also beginning to see some examples of evolution taking place in response to climate change. And one of the great stories of that evolutionary process comes to us from the Caribbean, from the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean, where a 
herpetologist named Colin Donahue had been studying these little anole lizards, which are a small lizard, but you know, sort of distant cousins to an iguana. So if you can picture that body shape on a small form, this is an anole. And he had been out there documenting these lizards, surveying their populations in preparation and as part of a larger project on the, the consequences of, of non-native rats, the Norway rats that were, that were attacking lizards and, and other native fauna uh, on these islands. And so the idea was you go out and you, you survey all the native fauna, then you remove the rats, and then you go back later and see how the native ecosystem has responded. But right after he finished his field work, he and his team had gone back uh, home, and then two Category 5 hurricanes hammered those islands and just flattened the place. I mean, uprooted trees and destroyed buildings, of course, and just left the, the human community and the, the natural community reeling. And of course, the rat project was put on an indefinite hold, but Colin realized he was in a rare position to study something else. He could go back, repeat his survey and ask the question, did those hurricanes have a measurable impact on the lizard population? So he did this. He scrambled, got together some funding, went back there with a team and sort of found himself in a, in a situation of scientific deja vu. They were repeating the precise field experiment. They just finished six weeks earlier. And what was remarkable was that in fact, very soon into this, they realized they were seeing something different. The surviving lizards, the ones they were catching afterwards, that population had an average toe pad size that was larger, not just a teeny bit, but, but up to you know, 9%, an average of 9% larger on the toe pads of these lizards. And the front legs were long and strong of the survivors. And the back legs of the lizards were measurably shorter. And that was a bit of a mystery to the team. But luckily, Colin had thought ahead and brought along in his luggage to the Caribbean a leaf blower. And he wanted to see how lizards would behave in a hurricane force wind. And since you can't be out there taking notes in a real hurricane, he used the leaf blower to recreate one on the porch of his hotel room. And I should say up front, no lizards were harmed. They had a soft uh, net and, and padding for the lizards if they were to fall from the sticks. But what they did was put lizard on a stick and then turn on the leaf blower in a controlled way so they could measure the wind speed and see how the lizards behaved. And of course, the lizards would scurry to the lee side of the stick. And then as the wind increased, you could see in the videos, their, their, their back legs starting to, to slip from the stick until finally, their, their legs, their back legs slip off entirely and their entire body is flapping like a banner in the wind as they cling on for dear life with those strong front legs and large toe pads. And that data uh, was fully explained then, including the short back legs when Colin saw this behavior because he realized, hey, they need those sticky toe pads to hold on and strengthen the front legs. But the short back legs are also advantageous because it's less drag on their bodies when they're flapping like a flag in the wind. And so he realized in that moment that what he and his team had measured was survival of the fittest natural selection playing out not over hundreds or thousands of years, but really in the course of a single field season. And they went back later to see if the traits were being passed on, and, and they were to the next 
generations. And then they looked at a, wa a wider uh, geographical distribution of these sorts of features and found that wherever in the Caribbean, strong hurricanes are more common, the lizards in those populations have those sorts of features. So this is what biologists call directional selection, meaning evolutionary pressure pushing these populations uh, to have those physical traits in response to climate-driven increase in strong hurricanes. Well, again, something that, yeah, just uh, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have thought to look into at all. But um, yeah, I'm glad that no lizards were harmed, but it sounds like a fascinating experiment. And yeah, the idea of, to, to any scientist, I think, of, of watching such a key process like natural selection play out in, in a short space of time is is mind-blowing because as you as you said it's usually something that happens over over a huge huge time frame um and in terms of i mean is it before i'm going to move on in a minute to something a little different um would, would you like to mention anything else about the book before i do well, you did ask what we can take away from all of this. And I yeah. think there are a couple of important lessons. You know, the first being that for, for biologists and conservationists, it's important to understand which species out there have some natural resilience and which do not, so that we can better apportion very limited resources in terms of research and conservation and policy toward the species and systems that need our help the most. And then at a, at a, at a more personal level, I think there's a lot that we can take away from these studies of natural systems in that, uh, you know, firstly, we need to be able to apportion and uh, dole out, if you will, our very limited emotional capital to this crisis. It's very easy to feel overwhelmed by climate change, so we need to know what to worry about. And these sorts of studies can, in fact, help us to do that. But they can also instruct us in, in more fundamental ways about the human response to climate change, reminding us that we really are just one more species on this planet responding with the very same tools. And to illustrate that, I will, will draw on a story, very recent story, just in the last six months or so, of a hurricane that struck the city of New Orleans here in North America. And as that big storm bore down, of course, everyone there was reminded of Hurricane Katrina, which struck that city with such dire consequences in 2004. So here it is, you know, 16, 17 years later, and it's happening again. In the interim, the, uh, the people there with help from the, the federal government had built a new seawall to protect the city from storm surge. And so here is the test if this is actually going to work. And in fact, it did. The city did not flood. So that is a great example of one of the sort of general responses that any species can make to climate change, adapting in place, staying where you are. Well, we've also already mentioned that for many species that can move, they're moving in response to climate change, which is another one of the main natural responses that we see out there. And what I find interesting about the New Orleans example is that, yes, the seawall held and that adaptation preserved the city, but 
that was holding back the flood water from an urban population that remains 20% smaller than it was in 2004 because tens of thousands of people in the wake of Hurricane Katrina decided that that place was no longer suitable habitat for them. They departed and they never came back. And so in that one human example, you see these two processes at play. You see adaptation in place and you see movement in response to climate change. So it's a great reminder that we are out there combating this crisis with the very same tool set as plants and animals. That's great. That's, yeah, that's really important to mention. I think that, um, I mean, we're going to move on, but I just a big reminder to everyone in the UK where most of my listeners are based that your book is out. And obviously I'm, I sadly haven't been able to read it yet, but obviously just from from your responses it, it seems absolutely fascinating so i definitely encourage all my listeners to to buy a copy and to read it if they can and if they're in a position to do so um what i really want to we're, we're coming quite close to the end but what i really want to ask here is is quite a broad question but it's i haven't had a um a i've only had very few scientists actual you know trained um science uh, and academics uh, on the podcast recently and so I think this is quite important to ask I'm a <clears throat> sorry um, I'm a university student and a huge range of people who listen to this podcast are currently studying um, for degrees and becoming environmental scientists and uh, ecologists and conservation biologists and zoologists and and all these things and also science communicators and storytellers and as a conservation biologist who who has written books and contributed to papers and and done all these kind of things, you've both been a scientist and a science communicator. Um, what should my if there, if there's one thing, obviously it's very hard to choose, but hypothetically, if you were put on the spot and said you had to find one big topic, one area that hypothetically it would be amazing if a few hundred extra people use their education to focus on this one issue, to focus on fixing and communicating this one problem, what would it be and why? <laughs> oh, it's a, great, it's a great question. I might have to fudge my answer a little bit, but I would say that obviously, you know, in this time of crisis, the climate change issue is sort of an overarching theme in all branches, really, of the natural sciences. Now you see it. Uh, it's not too much of an exaggeration, I think, to say that all biologists are studying climate change now, whether they know it or not. Uh, you know, it's that pervasive in ecosystems everywhere. And so it, it, I think, in a sense, the answer will present itself to people regardless of the particular niche that they might choose in their studies and their career, in that that climate theme is going to be a part of the work they do moving forward. Because that I, I can say from my own experience and from so many professionals that I have interacted with and talked to over the year, over the years, we have seen this happen in our own work where, you know, the climate 
emphasis grows over time in every field. You start to see you know, these surprises occur over and over again, where you go out to study one thing, you find the conditions on the ground so different, not just in terms of the weather, but in terms of the lives and, and habits of the creatures and plants that you were there to study in the first place, that you come back with a very different data set based on these responses that are going on in nature. And that process will accelerate. You, you know, so even if we you know, are able to start to rein in the carbon emissions that are driving this process, we have baked in enough into the system already that this will be the theme uh, moving forward in the natural sciences for decades and decades to come. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree as a non-scientist as well, just as an observer of the world around me, I definitely agree that that, that kind of theme of the climate crisis does permeate pretty much every area, not just of science, but of, of really society at the minute as well. Um, and I mean, b before we finish, we're going to wind down very quickly, but we're going to do a little quick fire round if that's okay. So, I mean, it's not always been quick fire historically. Um, <laughs> some, some answers do demand a bit of a extended, um, some, sorry, sorry, some questions do demand a bit of an extended answer. Um, but it's just four quick questions that I ask have the same questions that I've asked all my guests since episode one. And it's always lovely to, to hear your um, unique uh, answers to, to sort of fairly basic questions. Um, if that's all right. Oh, absolutely. Quick is yeah. not always my strong suit, but I'll do my best. Yes, lay them on. Um, we're going to start it off with a really hard one. What's your favorite animal? Oh, that changes. That changes all the time. But I'm going to be quick, and I'm going to tell you that it's today the great horned owl, because we uh, uh, just heard them calling. It's mating season for great horned owls. They're a winter mater uh, here in the Pacific Northwest and just heard them calling at our home just uh, two evenings ago. And so I'm very hopeful that they're going to settle in the one hollow snag tree on our property this year and, and raise a family. Where's a place you like to go and connect with nature somewhere, sort of the one place outside that you feel really at home? Well, I'm fortunate enough to, to fortunate enough to feel at home in a lot of spots, but I look for places right close to home. I, I really am a, a big proponent of backyard or neighborhood nature, places that you can find that don't have to be, you know, the middle of a wilderness area to connect to plants and animals. So for me, it's right in the backyard. For some people, I know it might be a city park or, or uh, you know, an, an open space somewhere within their neighborhoods. But I really am a proponent of that. So for me right now, it's right in the yard. Do you have a conservation hero? And by this, I just mean kind of someone in the natural world, uh, maybe in your field or your wider sphere of uh, environmental enthusiasm that you look up to on a daily basis and, and just really admire and respect. There are a number of people that I have, you know, interacted with over the years. And, and, and one of the real highlights of, of working on these books that I write is, is contacting scientists all over the place and learning about their work and, and really, you know, interacting with heroes, frontline workers in, in, in biology and so on, and other fields, you know, on a daily basis. 
but if I were to, to, to label one individual, and that this is one you've probably heard from others in my line of work or in many, I, I would highlight Jane Goodall in that uh, she is a scientist and has done you know, groundbreaking work earlier in her career on the chimpanzees at, at Gombe Stream. Uh, but she also at some point realized and recognized that there were many scientists coming up who could continue her field work, who could do the sorts of things that she was doing uh, in her primatology research, but there was only one Jane Goodall. Uh, and so she was able to, even though I have no doubt that she would love to still be doing field work. You know, she, she was able to transition beautifully from a field scientist out of a very remote place doing, uh, doing research to a great proponent of conservation, giving hundreds, literally hundreds of speeches a year all over the world, always very graciously and connecting all of these people to her ideas and to the wider conservation movement. A brilliant, a brilliant pivot uh, in her career that has allowed her to be effective on, on both fronts as a scientist and then also as a communicator. And last off, how do you take your coffee? Oh, <laughs> any way I can get it. Um, I, when I'm in doing field work, I drink it black, but at home, if there's uh, cream around, I will definitely doctor it up with a little cream. Actually, the best instant coffee in the world that I've had is, is uh, in Tanzania. There's a local uh, coffee company there, like Tanza Cafe or something. If you're going to have to do it with your black instant coffee, you want that stuff for sure. Finally, I just want to ask, where can people find you? What, where, apart from reading your books, obviously, in, in shops, um, what's your kind of online handles and, and social media, if you have any? Oh, good question. I'm a little behind the times, I have to admit, on social media, but I do have a website, which is just myname.net. And I also do some uh, you know, videos and things for oh, groups like uh, you know, the PBS here in the States has a program called Nature. And so I do videos for their social media and I do things for, I've done a few for Wired magazine for some of their uh, uh, video uh, stations on YouTube and, and that sort of thing. So uh, you can probably find uh, all of that information at my website, various connections to other online sources. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me. I've been very quite tired over the last few days, so I know that you have been an excellent speaker and a much more engaging guest than I have a host. So thank you for that. And thanks for answering my questions so, so passionately and so brilliantly. Oh, it's been my pleasure being on with you. And uh, you, don't, you don't sound tired at all. The, the coffee must be doing its work. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. That's what it's there for. All right. Thanks so much. Take care now. Thank you. You too. Thanks again to Tor for taking the time to speak to me today. You can find a link to his website in the episode description. So in today's episode, I'm featuring Afro Cafe Instant Coffee. Unusually for me, I haven't done a ton of research as their website is pretty vague. and I'm not entirely sure if I could happily class them as like a fully... Um, certified, sustainable and, and ecological coffee company. 
but uh, I do know that this coffee was produced by cooperatives in Tanzania, which is always a, quite a good sign, and it does come highly recommended from Tor himself. Apparently it's the perfect fieldwork fuel and is now available across Europe at a fairly reasonable price for what it is. So if, um, if any scientists are interested, uh, I think this might be the coffee for your next expedition into the wild. All the links to their website will be, as ever, in the description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts, as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Stephen Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists. Mm-hmm.